You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, you're not wearing a neck brace, but you rolled in today looking, acting very much like Bobby the Brain Heenan after uh, he gets body slammed by Hogan in the mid 80s or whatever. And then he's got to sell the neck injury for like six months at a time. So I'm left to assume that your pile of trash neck is is still a pile of trash. It's a huge pile of trash. And it seems to somehow be getting worse rather than better. Are you a candidate for a neck transplant at any point? At this point, I'm considering all options. Uh, I'm really actually trying to avoid any type of surgery. I mean, going to this chiropractor and everything to, to see him about it. But man, it sucks. It's it's more than just neck pain, too. It's like a uh, like my vertebra pinching down on a nerve, which makes it so that I can barely use my right arm sometimes. Um, and then it's really fun because when I go to sleep, if I lay down in any one position for like 15 or 20 minutes... The pain wakes me up, and so then I can't sleep either. So then I become grumpy for two reasons. So look the fuck out, is what I'm saying. Yeah, big, a big switch if you showed up here grumpy and out of sorts. I don't know how I would respond to that, certainly. You, you really want to push me right now? You is know this what, what you want to do? You know what you I've see heard where this goes? helps is if you hold a pen in one hand, John McCain style, right? Then no one will notice that you're having trouble with that arm. Wait, is that is that why he does that? Yeah. You okay. didn't know that? See, it works. Just illustrated <laughs> my point right there. Wait, so like when you say helps, you mean helps other people not notice so much. Yes. That to me exactly. does not really help me. No, you are clearly not trying to keep up appearances. No. We I've given up on that. oftentimes get emails for people uh, implying that we should uh, expand this audio podcast to include video. And it's because those people cannot see us. Yeah, they don't want that. They, don't, they think they want it. They don't. They don't want it. They don't. They don't need to see you sitting here in your salmon-colored shirt with a little pocket on the front. True story. Here's a fact for those people listening at home. A little behind-the-scenes fact: Ben Folks has been wearing the same shirt three weeks in a row to record the show. I find it odd that That's you noticed that. That's actual truth. Not just. Not just you coming up with haha games to play. Well, look, man. When you work from home and you assume that nobody really notices what shirts you wear, you just grab a shirt and this one. I guess happens to make it in the rotation on Monday, early in the week, and so here we are. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, as they so often are, is brought to you by DraftKings.com. Don't be a noob. Be a black belt level in your MMA expertise. You know all the fighters. You know who's going to win the fights. It's time to put that knowledge to the test. At DraftKings.com. At DraftKings, you could win huge cash prizes every time you play. Just select five fighters, stay under the salary cap, outscore your competition, and you could be on your way to a massive payday. Score points for significant strikes, takedowns, advances, knockdowns, and more. These are the biggest daily fantasy MMA contests anywhere, and only DraftKings has them. Uh, play to win your piece of the $1 billion in prizes DraftKings has given away this year. Don't miss out. Ben, tell them about how they can play for free. 
We'll tell you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play daily fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC on Fox 16. Remember, use CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, I like to imagine Todd Duffy's manager wearing a pith helmet and safari gear bursting into his locker room shouting, the Eminem curse is real, change your walkout music, only to discover the room is empty, that he just missed him, that he's too late. And in round number two, just a British dance music DJ who wants to go on a violent revenge tour where he takes retribution against the evil drug users who brutalized him so long ago. But who will Guy Ritchie get to play Mike Bisping? And in round number three, Tyler Jeffrey Dillashaw and Hanan Donacimento Motapagato. Nailed it. Fixing to do it again, brother. Remember them? Remember when they were the hottest thing going under 155? pounds all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff but right now like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from josh montgomery he writes last week somewhat overlooked in the avalanche of fights and other ufc stuff dana announced ufc 200 will be next july that's ufc president dana white he's referring to i believe see, go now, on see now it's you jumping jumping on the, the <laughs> I just, bandwagon i can tell by your face it was bugging you it did bother me ufc 200 will be next july opening the new mgm grand arena during international fight week i did not see anyone point out in any articles or on the twitter machine but if you do the math it's only 11 pay-per-view events in the next 12 months Months. To that, I say hallelujah. For all of us complaining of too many events, this is a good sign since there's always 12 to 13 pay-per-views in any given 12-month period. Did you dudes notice this, and do you think if the UFC brass were to intentionally scale back the PPVs, they would do it quietly like this instead of openly admitting they run too many and that they are scaling back? Or is this just them waiting uh, wanting the number 200 to line up nicely with the arena opening and the fight week. Uh, I did not notice this and would say as an addendum to Josh Montgomery's question, that doesn't seem like much of a scale back no, it doesn't. to me. And I've never had a problem with the number of pay-per-view events, right? The pay, like it's usually about one pay-per-view event, um, event a month. Uh, during the year, they try to squeeze in 13 sometimes these days. Uh, but those are generally the high-end UFC events, which are the events that I appreciate. Yeah. It's the other stuff that seems like it is uh, extra to me and, you know, right. necessary. Like, like this week or last week, for instance, where you had a tough finale on Sunday, a fight night event in San Diego on Wednesday, and then the fight night event in Scotland on Saturday. Like that – and that the problem is – um, you're right that it's not too much of a difference because I think what in 2014 they ran about 12 pay-per-views, I believe. So running 11, uh, in another calendar year would not, or in just a 12 month period wouldn't be such a huge difference. But the problem is that when you run so many fight night events and you have to have something on them, you detract a little bit from the quality of the pay-per-view events. A lot of these fight night main events would be awesome, uh, main card fights on pay-per-views. So you kind of water down both of them. And you also make it difficult for us to 
remember and plan ahead for what's coming up and, and give us an adequate chance to get psyched because there's just so many damn like this. I think this is a good example. The, the TJ Dillashaw, Hen and Brow one, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about that. Like that one being on Fox, that's an awesome fight to have on free yes, TV. Yeah. And yet you don't get that much of a chance to tell us about it because shit, man, you had three events last week. You're, you're already busy trying to promote your Ronda Rousey pay-per-view at the beginning of August. There's just so much other stuff to focus on. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm already on record saying that my belief of the like optimum number of UFC events in a, in a calendar year would be about 27, 28. Cause then you do, uh, 12 pay-per-views, 12 Fox sports, one shows and three or four shows on uh big Fox, uh, which would still be a lot. You would still get two or three UFC events a month in that case, but that would still be, you know, roughly half of what, a little more than half of what we're getting, uh, Currently, and to answer Josh Montgomery's more specific question, if they did have to stay scale back, do you think that they would do it quietly uh, instead of openly admitting that they run too many shows? When was the last time you ever heard the UFC admit that it was wrong? Yeah. Ever? Like, of course they would do it quietly, and or maybe even come up with an excuse for it. For all, yeah, I was going to say if they, if the only alternative to them doing it quietly would be them saying that they are doing it because of some reason that basically means that they're really smart like they would come up with some explanation for like we're doing this on purpose this way um because we thought we were too successful the other way or something like that they you know they would definitely not be like you know what you guys were right we were doing too much of this stuff and we're going to pull back to me the most interesting question about ufc one uh 200 and i will use this as a segue into the next question is whether or not uh zufa llc will still own the ufc by the time it happens. And that leads me to the next question this week from Steve Franklin, who writes, what do you guys think of Frankie Edgar's comments regarding the UFC, quote unquote, milking the cow with Conor McGregor? It seems to me that that may very well, that they may very well be doing just that, uh, coupled with the Reebok deal in order to get all they can before a rumored sale of the organization comes to fruition. Discourse, please. There it is. See, so it's, it's always surprising the subtle and small ways in which language changes. Our living and evolving language, right? As Sarah especially, Palin said, you got to celebrate it. It's a living language. Especially here on the co-main event podcast. Evolving by the week on the co-main event podcast. Yeah, uh, these rumors that the UFC or that Zufa is looking to sell the UFC. You know, those rumors pop up. From time to time, there were some rumors about that last year. There have been some pretty persistent rumors about it this time. And so you got to think that there's there's got to be some fire somewhere to that smoke. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they will sell it or that the sale is imminent. But it does probably mean that there's something to that. There's That they must be talking to somebody looking around a little bit. And as I think we've talked about before, there are some of these things that seem like slapping a new coat of paint on the house before you put it on the market, right? Yeah, you and I have discussed that at least in private, if not on the show. Like a lot of these, uh, you know, new wrinkles in the UFC landscape uh, do seem like the kind of thing that you would do if you wanted to make your property more attractive to buyers, maybe even going back all the way to the Fox deal. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it took the UFC a really long time to land a, a broadcast deal because it... Uh, it, it wanted to uh, retain unique and complete control over its broadcast. And maybe it gave up a little of that when it finally signed the Fox deal. And then you've had the, the Reebok uh, official apparel licensing deal and the expanded drug testing, all of which is stuff that uh, 
seems to kind of fly in the face traditionally with what we think of, uh, you know, coming from the UFC power structure, but would make sense if they were, like you said, trying to put a new coat of paint on the old car and then uh, putting it in the want ads. Um, but we don't, again, we don't know if there's any truth to that. There's been, there were pretty persistent rumors last year that a sale was imminent in, uh, last summer, I think, but then fell apart at the last moment. Uh, and if there was truth to that, then I suppose it would make sense, uh, if, if the owners were still trying to find a deal, because, you know, if you were interested in selling it last year, I don't know that you would be disinterested in selling it this year. I would think that this would maybe not be a great time to sell the UFC if you're the UFC's owners. I mean, if you feel like you got to get rid of it or, you know, you want to go in another direction, uh, fine. But it seems like kind of like trying to sell your house when everybody knows you and your wife just got divorced and they're like, well, these are motivated sellers. Uh, it, you Like you mentioned, the stuff with the drug testing, like if I'm a potential buyer of the UFC and I'm going, all right, you just in- implemented this Reebok deal and people are still pissed off at you about it. Um, the the drug testing thing has been basically committed to, but we haven't seen what the effects might be. We haven't seen how many good fighters you could possibly lose uh, when this stuff, when people start popping positive. Um, you got the UFC light heavyweight champion with an uncertain future after his hit and run stuff. Uh, and everybody keeps talking about how your revenues are down and pay-per-view sales and stuff are down. I don't know if this is the time that I want to try to, to go out and sell the UFC, but Hey, I mean, who knows what might be motivating them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it would be that it was kind of some straight up robber baron type shit where you got in into an unregulated industry and, squeezed every possible drop that you could out of the sponge and when once you saw that that it was uh wrung out dry and and looked down the road and saw the possibility of stuff like uh the necessity for increased drug testing and the potential for uh fighters to organize and and the potential for uh class action lawsuits to be levied against you you might think there's another one yeah i don't know man maybe we maybe we bail out of this thing call it good especially if we can get a couple few billion uh, on, under our belts. Yeah. Or just whoever writes the check for the couple few billion or whatever it is, is going to be signing themselves on for a lot of, a lot of knuckleballs that they don't know which way they're going to break yet. And that one of the, I think the most interesting thing when engaging in wild and, and unfounded speculation, which we are obviously fun time about the, uh, the potential sale of the UFC is who would buy the thing and how that would change the landscape of the sport. Because I think that, you know, a lot of people who disagree with the general direction in which the the bosses at Zufa LLC have led the sport over the last decade uh, would probably welcome new ownership. But at the same time, as I've said on this show before, I feel like it would be a be careful what you wish for type situation yeah. because there would be no guarantee that what you would get would be any better. And... uh what you get could be worse. Could be much worse. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you don't, you just don't know if that change would necessarily be for the better. I do think though, one potential upside to a sale would be, uh, there does seem to be sometimes the stubbornness on the part of the UFC executives. Uh, and because they've been in the business so long and they feel like, you know, they saved the sport basically and turned it into this behemoth that they are obviously right about everything and, and, don't need to listen to anybody uh, outside input, any of that kind of stuff. Maybe somebody that came to it with fresh eyes uh, would be a little more capable of 
figuring out what direction you need to go in, what changes you need to make. Uh, or maybe they would just make awful decisions. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it could, it could break either way, really. Uh, the next question this week comes to us from Dan Lintern. He writes, would Fedor signing with the UFC mean more to MMA fans than WWE finally getting sting? Uh, so Ben, the biggest breaking news in between podcasts this week, uh, last week's, uh, Tuesday breaking news, which is a, uh, an institution at this point in the mixed martial arts world, uh, is that Fedor Emelianenko is considering a comeback to mixed martial arts that he started training with that idea imminent in his mind. And this week, uh, you had a longtime manager and friend of the last emperor, Vadim Finkelstein, who, hey, at least that guy's still around. <laughs> I was worried. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, he, he's out on a media tour. He's on the MMA hour with Ariel Helwani today. Uh, I think that the conventional wisdom, when we first heard the rumor that Fedor might return, I think, you know, we, we maybe all jumped to conclusion that he would land in Bellator because of a previous relationship with Scott Coker and because negotiations with the UFC previously had gone so terribly. And you know he likes to get his co-promote on, so right, they, yeah, they might M be more amenable to that. M1 might still be trying to do that. It's, it sounded I didn't get a chance to watch it, but all reaction today that I heard from uh, the MMA Hour appearance said that, that Vadim Finkelstein uh, made it sound like the UFC could be a player in negotiations for Fedor if it wanted to be. I don't know if that's a negotiating tactic to try to drive up the price on other people. Or well, obviously if, you're going to say that, right? right? You're not going to be like, we're only going to deal with Bellator. <laughs> Uh, hey, man, World Series of Fighting has publicly thrown its hat in the ring. Okay? It says it can afford this guy. And absolutely nobody else. It can afford to have him come in, fight a bum off the street Just for 20 bucks. Just a series of fights against Ray Sifo, who's appearing for free. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it sounds like, you know, at least to hear them tell that they're interested in, in going back to the well with the UFC, even though uh, that couldn't have gone any worse the first time they did it. I mean... Both for the, both for fans and for the UFC who are interested in, in gaining the, the services of at the time, the guy that was recognized as the top heavyweight. And I don't know if it could have gotten any worse for Fedor, who well, then went over to Strike Force and lost three fights in a row. But see, now both sides are coming to this negotiation, assume, like, you know, this completely hypothetical negotiation at this point from different, from very different positions than they were in the last time. Last time, you recall one of the sticking points, at least according to Dana White, was that the the Fedor camp wanted a lot of control over who they fought and everything. And back then it was the fact that he hadn't been beaten was such a big part of his allure, right? And so, and Dana White kept saying, you know, I was telling him you're one fight away from being worth nothing because, hey, if you, if you lose that, then, you know, the mystique of Fedor kind of crumbles with it. And then that, that happened anyway. He lost a few fights, went away, wants to come back now. And the landscape, I think, is just so different. I, I mean, this is a time where the UFC assigned CM Punk, you know, and a time when Bellator has had just this baffling success uh, <laughs> with some of the old dudes. It's resurrected, even if they can't really fight that well anymore. It seems like everybody's kind of realizing, okay, maybe you don't need that same kind of approach to make a, a Fedor in the UFC work. You Both sides kind of have a little bit different motivations now. It, the UFC might realize it, was, it would be in the best interest to – Give Vador somebody we, we want to see him fight, but not throw him in there and try to get him crushed by uh, some young killer heavyweight. I think that maybe everybody could could see the upside and, and working together on this one. But, but the, who knows? That's, again, just a hypothetical negotiation still. I mean, if it was going to happen, 
I feel like it would be a microcosm of how stuff happens in the fight world for the greatest heavyweight, arguably the greatest MMA fighter of all time, to finally show up in the UFC way past his prime at like age 38. I feel like that would just be very typical of how things happen in fight sports, that you would get this sort of like over-the-hill, uh, not necessarily decrepit, but certainly not, you know, the guy that we saw rule pride with an iron fist uh, for years during arguably the sport's golden age. Uh, you'd like You would get some older version of that guy. I feel yeah. like that's just... If it's going to happen, that's that's the only reason that I could believe at this point that Fedor might show up in the UFC would be like, oh, well, of course it's going to happen now, like five years after it should have happened. Yeah. I, I mean, but then that's you being kind of a uh, – the way all fight fans are. We feel like we're just the, the hated stepchildren of the sports world and we don't even deserve anything nice. So you kind of beaten up on yourself there a little bit, I feel. Yeah, I should probably see a counselor. Next question this week comes to us from Sean from Japan. Boy, I hope that's true. I hope Sean's actually writing us from Japan. <laughs> Why would you doubt that? I mean, just international flavor for the show, you know? Yeah, I mean... I mean I, Sean doesn't sound like a guy from Japan. Well, he might not be from Japan, but he could be in Japan. He writes, Did Tony Ferguson prove that the classic Nintendo game Star, Fro Star Fox was right all along in that the best way to avoid damage is to do a barrel roll? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, Tony Ferguson uh, goes out and beats Josh Thompson at UFC Fight Night. Frank Mir versus Todd Duffy last week. That, I believe, is like his sixth win in a row yeah. in the UFC. Beat uh, him up, too. Wore yeah. him around like a button. Yes, he did. Last time uh, Tony Ferguson lost was to Michael Johnson via decision way back in May of 2012. Uh, he's also, as we say almost every time, got one of my favorite nicknames in the UFC, El Kukui. Uh, and at this point, I mean, you got to give the guy somebody in the top 10, right? You got to give him, uh, a, a, a true contender. It's time for, for, uh, Anthony Armand, Tony El Kukui Ferguson to, to make his case. You know, I was thinking of that too, when I looked at his winning streak and man, isn't it crazy how at lightweight you got to win like six in a row before we even notice that you're on a winning streak at heavyweight win two straight. And we're talking title shot. He would have been the champion like four fights ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, he would have been uh, a hall of famer by now with six fight, six wins in a row at heavyweight. Uh, but that fight was so much fun to watch, and I love. It seems like he's really embraced that style now, where he's just kind of going to go out there and go for stuff. And we've seen it though backfire a little, and that I think is going to be still his problem. Is if he gets up there to where he's uh, fighting some of those more strategic wrestler types, is that they know how to take advantage of a guy like that who gives you some openings. He's going to try for stuff. He'll try for stuff off his back. You know, he's in there doing just G.I. Joe battle rolls. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that he's going to leave openings for people. And you, you, it wouldn't be too surprising to see him lose a decision here or there and halt that momentum. But at the same time, I don't want him to change because of it. Because he's so much fun to watch. Yeah, it's kind of been a revelation to watch him in his last few fights. This one against Josh Thompson. Uh, and then the, the previous fight against Gleason Tebow, where he came out and rolled through a guy via first round submission, who's a guy who's notoriously hard to stop, a guy that's going to hang around and force you to beat him by decision in Gleason Tebow. Uh, and you, you're right, Tony Ferguson, exciting fighter, big lightweight, monstrous reach. Uh, the, the revelation, I guess, of watching him fight in these last two bouts has been that, like, He's a, he could be a top guy and seems like exactly the kind of stylist that you would want to be 
a top contender at lightweight if you were a promoter and and someone who who wanted to to watch an action-packed fun fight um it's just going to be a matter of of how he handles that step up in competition just because you know josh thompson uh there were some rumors leading up to this fight that he was already kind of had one foot out the door uh yeah, I mean, I was at the fight where he retired afterwards, and that was like two years ago. <laughs> so more than rumors, then, that he had one foot out the door. Uh, was he a replacement in this or or uh, something like that? I had that in my head, but I don't know if that's right. Um, and, you know, for uh, for Tony Ferguson to step up and fight guys in the top <clears> – <throat> excuse me, top ten uh, would be a step up in competition from guys like Abel Trujillo and, and uh, you know, Danny Castillo, Gleason Tebow. Well, that Danny Castillo one, that was one where, you know, he was really going for stuff, and Danny Castillo's uh, – Game plan seemed to be to take him down, stay on top, and hold him there. And you'll recall that was the one afterwards where Danny Castillo was upset about losing the split decision and pointed out that he had just held a grown man down. Oh, that's uh, right, yeah. When you have to point out that what you did, you did to a grown man, you're kind of admitting that it's not that impressive. But see, that's the kind of fight where you could easily lose a decision like that. Uh, and then if your whole thing is built on this winning streak that you've got going for you know a couple years – that all can really stop in a hurry. And that's why the lightweight is so tough though, man, because there are tons of guys with that exact type of skill set that could beat you that way and are probably hoping for the chance to to get in there and do it. But at the same time, if you're the UFC, you're going to want to kind of match him up against the, against guys like Josh Thompson, where he can put on a, a hell of a show for you. Last question this week comes to us from Cisco Calderon, another guy who I hope is writing us with his true name. He writes, Holly Holm did a great job on last night's fight, at least the last few minutes of it. Holly versus Ronda would be a great fight, considering Ronda has upped her game on the boxing, although Holly hasn't really shown any real hint of a ground game in existence. Do you think if she fought Ronda, it would be another quick finish under 15 seconds? Please discuss. Uh, so yeah, Holly Holm now two UFC victories under her belt. Uh, and, you know, this one... Uh, was a better showing for, for Holly Holm than maybe in, in her first fight. But at the same time where there has been criticism of her, I think that it stems from the idea that, that maybe we had thought and or hoped that she would be able to come into the UFC and immediately be an exciting contender uh, for Ronda Rousey's title. I don't know if, if people are seeing that yet in her. And I think that if anything, that's where some of the criticism uh, comes for comes from, but she did go out there uh, and pretty much beat the tar out of Marion Renault. And especially as I believe you wrote on Twitter and at the end of the fight when she just realized, hey, I'm way better than this person and I could take it to the next gear. Yeah, well, uh, you could. It got impressive there toward the end. It did, and she has a lot of impressive skills and can do a lot of great things. You'd think, though, like, and she mentioned it in her post fight interview where she said something to the effect of, I didn't want to go in there and get caught with something stupid. And so she was being kind of careful in those early rounds and really. Fighting from so far out that sometimes she was coming up short. And because she, I think, probably realized, okay, there's no reason this person should beat me unless I rush in there and get dumb and get clipped. And that's one of the things, though, that makes me wonder about how a fight with Rousey would go. Because you do watch a fight like that and you think, well, yeah, you don't seem like you're quite the uh, the Rousey killer that everybody made you out to be when they were hoping the UFC would sign you. But at the same time, if she fought somebody like Ronda Rousey who needs to get close to you, who doesn't want to stand out there and kickbox with you, but probably believes in her hands well enough to, to give it at least a little bit of a try. And somebody like Ronda Rousey, who really doesn't mind being hit and is willing to, to get hit on her way in to, to come after you. 
I'm curious to see how Holly Holm would do against a fighter who is really trying to push forward against her and close that distance rather than, you know, her being the one to, to stay on the outside and decide when to go in and when not to. I mean, probably Ronda Rousey would take a couple shots, push her up against the fence, uh, and then get her down on the ground and submit her. I don't know how fast that would happen, but it would be an, an interesting test. It just seems like even Holly Holm is kind of trying to take it slow a little bit and maybe get a little more comfortable in there before she tries that. Yeah, I think that the most exciting and interesting things about Holly Holm are her size and her mobility and maybe just her pure athleticism. Like she seems the reason that I think you had people, myself included, who were excited to get her in the UFC and excited to see if she could be a contender for for Rousey's title is that, you know, she has those tools a lot, you know, kind of in much the same way we thought Phil Davis might have had the tools really early in his UFC career uh, just because of his size and his wrestling background and his athleticism. We thought thought he could be a guy to push John Jones. I think the same is kind of true of Holly Holm in that, uh, you know, she's a big women's bantamweight. She's got great mobility, great footwork, good striking skills in that you feel like if she could keep it on the feet, she might have the edge there against the champion in the, in the stand-up game. Uh, but at the same time, once you, when you actually watch her fight against people, uh, who are also fairly high level competition, it starts to seem like she's still got a few, uh, steps to make before she's at that level, which frankly, that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, like, you know, let Holly Holm mature and grow as a fighter. Let's not throw her in there with Ronda Rousey until we're, we're, until we think that she could put up a, a decent fight. I think that that's an okay way to go. It's weird though. You know, we always talk about UFC matchmaking, uh, and, and I'm usually come down on the side that I like to see the best fight the best and, um, I'm not much of a boxing guy. So when you go with for a, a Conor McGregor style promotion where you build a guy up with several fights that you think he's supposed to win, it always kind of rubs me the wrong way. On the flip side, though, it's always kind of weird when you've got somebody like Holly Holm who you feel like, OK, we need to put her in there with somebody who where a she can prove that that she's UFC level and be someone that might make for an exciting fight. It, it seems like a lot of times we get these fights against somebody like Marion Renault, who is exactly the kind of fighter that you have to be kind of cautious with, right? Because you don't want to wind up on the ground with her, uh, and get caught in a submission, uh, or, you know, you don't want to let her like drag you into her realm of fighting. It just seems like that kind of matchup is kind of tailor-made to make for a cautious three-round unanimous decision win. That could be. I think also when you look around at, uh, women's bantamweight right now, for somebody for Holly Holm, you're looking at some, you're looking for somebody who is coming off a, a win or two that, that has a little bit of momentum, uh, and that over whom a win might mean something, you know, that kind of thing. And so, uh, you don't, it's not like you have limitless options there. You, you do kind of have to work with who you got and who's available, uh, something like that. But I don't know. She fights somebody, uh, a little more high profile in the next one and maybe somebody who will, try to test her on the ground more somebody who has like some good takedowns that where we could see uh, where she's at with that stuff. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see her if she can, can win one more big one. Uh, then we start getting serious about the Ronda Rousey talk because let's face it, man, Ronda Rousey is running out of people to beat up. Yeah, that's so the hand is going to be forced one way or another, I think, pretty soon. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode's edition of Listener Mail. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, 
you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes in the mixed martial arts world that we miss from Monday to Friday when we're not recording podcasts. It's free. It's supposed to be humorous. We think you'll like it. Sign up for it. If you don't like it, you can always just unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. One of the co-main event podcasts is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change other people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The National Academy of Sports Medicine guarantees that you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them about the internet offer. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. It's myusatrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben... I don't know where you want to start talking about Todd Duffy versus Frank Mir, except to say that Todd Duffy stormed out of his corner at the beginning of the main event of this fight night event from San Diego last week, throwing punches from his back pocket and seemingly oblivious to the idea that Frank Mir often fights as a southpaw because <laughs> he ran right into a series of left hands from Frank Mir, clocked Frank Mir once, Pretty pretty good. Seemed maybe that he stunned him. Unfortunately, just moments after that, he ended up running into the short left hook that felled him like a stick of lumber, as I believe we put in the Breakfast of Champions. He looked like one of those Empire Adat walkers falling yeah. in the snow. Just face first. And you know, when you say ran right into a left hand, that's really accurate. Yeah, that's literally what happened. Because he just he threw that that right hook where it's like he extended his arm all the way out of his side, like like Zangief doing his little like windmill move, except just with one arm, and kind of just winged it at him from a great distance while charging forward. And you just you look at that again in slow motion and you think Man, that is just a terrible idea in that situation. Also, I mean, I think at this point we have to say it that Todd Duffy has a suspect chin, uh, which just is not going to get you very far in the heavyweight division because almost everybody there can thump a little bit when they have to. And if, if you can't take those and you don't have absolutely like stellar defense, like you're not like a really slick boxer or something on the feet, you're not going to go very far in the UFC's heavyweight division. Which, in turn, makes sprinting out of your corner and turning your fight into a coin flip an even stranger decision. Yeah. Right? Like, I feel like it's a strange decision at that weight class anyway because, you know, regardless of what kind of chin you have, if a 260-pound Frank Mir punches you in your face, you're probably going to get knocked out yeah. if you let him do it over and over again. So, uh, you know, that's a – if Todd Duffy does indeed – 
have a bit of a light chin. Like that's a that's a weird way to fight, man. <laughs> well, and it seemed like afterwards he basically admitted that he should not like he didn't that was not his plan and he does not really know why he went out there and did that, which is also a little bit troubling. I'd also think if I was looking at a 260 pound something Frank Mir who did not look like that was all muscle just then, who seemed like maybe his body is feeling the effects of some of the prior hormone treatments that he's been on and had to get off, I would think you know, I might want to beat this guy in round three or four. I might want to take it a little bit later if I can, and maybe not just gong and rush James Thompson style as soon as the fight starts. And, and maybe that was his plan, and he just got worked up or something and abandoned it. But it is that we were talking uh, in a chat online about the that picture. There's that picture that we had on MMA Junkie of the moment right after Frank Mir had felled Todd Duffy. Duffy's just face-planted, totally out. Mir is kind of hunched over having just thrown the punch and like he does not look like a professional athlete in the pinnacle of his form no. in that moment no. right there looks a little soft around the middle a little bit like uh, as one sports writer once referred to Kirby Puckett's physique as a poorly packed duffel bag kind of <laughs> has that look going on and yet he's the winner and just knocked out this big buff looking dude you think all right Frank Mir. Now maybe we're we're getting back to just having to rely on the the skills you have rather than trying to bulk up and be some huge bodybuilder who can go out there and go muscle for muscle with a guy like Brock Lesnar. Well, and if anything, that's kind of some on the nose symbolism for what's going on at large in the heavyweight division right now. No you're, pun intended. <laughs> you're saying at large as, as goes Frank Mir, so goes the UFC heavyweight division. Well, I mean, if you just look at the heavyweight division, the thing is almost entirely populated by. Uh, elder statesman i guess would be a, a nice way to put it uh and we've talked on the podcast before about kind of the absence of the young hot prospect at heavyweight uh and maybe you know in that absence some of these older guys are, are making themselves at home but you've got fabricio verdum recently won the heavyweight title in his late 30s uh andre arlovsky is in the legitimate conversation as number one contender in his late 30s and frankly also a guy who like frank Mir, had lost three or four fights in a row and looked like you know he might that might be the end of him a few years ago. Uh, Josh Barnett is still in the top 10 in his late 30s. Uh, you know, Mark Hunt, Alistair Overeem. A guy like Frank Ben Rothwell Mier, at like 33 is Roy just a Nelson, damn spring chicken. Antonio Bigfoot Silva. The list kind of goes on and on of, uh, of you know, hoary old veterans in the heavyweight division. And you're right, a dude like Ben Rothwell who suddenly appears to have unexpectedly located the best possible version of himself and does at 33 years old kind of makes him the spry young rookie along with guys like Stipe Miocic and, and Cain Velasquez. Uh, but at the same time, Rothwell is, is a dude who's been around for forever too. And a guy who you might've thought had kind of scuffled his way through what could have been his athletic prime a few years ago when he was like three and four. And now suddenly is kind of back on the rise again, I guess specifically as that relates to Frank Mir, he'd lost four fights in a row from 2012 to 2014. Although to his credit, all against really high level fighters, junior Dos Santos, Daniel Cormier, Josh Barnett, and Alistair Overeem. And now he's won two fights in a row this year, both by first round stoppage, uh, due to his kind of surprisingly adept boxing game. Where, if anywhere, does a 30, you know, what is he, 38, 36? Late 30s, Frank Miller. I think he's almost 37, maybe. Yeah, where, I don't know. what do we do with this guy, man? In a, in a division where, uh, almost everyone has been on the vine an awful long time. Yeah, I don't, we, like, as we were just saying, 
it doesn't take a whole lot of wins to get you back in the picture there at heavyweight. I, I was thinking after I saw uh, this fight and Ben Rothwell fought not too long ago, uh, they're both coming off wins there. If you told me, hey, main event for some fight night card coming up is Frank Mir versus the Dark Lord Ben Rothwell, hashtag would watch, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. The weird poise of Frank Mir against the uh, perhaps overly choreographed new characterization of Ben Rothwell. I would watch that. <laughs> For sure. You know, John Anik said this as Frank Mir was taking the cage, and I didn't really think about it until after the fight was over and Frank Mir had won, but Frank Mir is the longest tenured active fighter on the UFC roster, and when you think about all the things he's done, you know, a couple-time UFC heavyweight champion, uh, a guy who's been at around the top of the division for a really long time, maybe the most impressive thing that he's done is that he's never been cut. He never fought in Pride, never fought in Bellator, never had to go back to the independent circuit and kind of put himself back together. 25 straight fights in a row from November of 2001 until present day is a hell of a run for anyone, and especially a guy who we've seen have to physically remake himself as many times as Frank Mir had. Like, that's kind of an incredible accolade when you think about it. Yeah, it is. And I was kind of surprised. I noticed that, too, when they were talking about just his years of experience, and they were really going with the approach of let's frame all... I mean, there's one way to think of it, right, is all this experience that he's going to put to valuable use against these guys who aren't as uh, schooled in this game as he is. The other way to think of it is it's a lot of miles on the old odometer. Uh, and clearly they are going with the, that is a, a feature rather than a bug. And it seemed like it was against the guy who's just going to come out there and, and try to donkey Kong you like Todd Duffy did. But it does make you wonder too, you know, that's a, uh, those are some hard stuff on your body there. That's a lot to go through. And it wasn't that, it was just recently with that Alistair Overeem fight that was, you know, last year, February of last year. Remember when he was making the comment where somebody had asked him, do you think that the loser of this fight could get cut? And he said something to the effect of, well, I don't think they'd cut Overeem. <laughs> you know, and it was like just recently he was talking about how he had to win some fights so that his wife would let him keep going to the gym every day. Uh, and he could kind of justify this continued existence. And now it also says something about the state of the heavyweight division. You win a couple and now we're thinking total resurgence. What's next? Fighting top 10 guys and maybe thinking title shot. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take much, like we said a couple times already. Uh, like Michael Bisping, do you find yourself at this point kind of rooting for Frank Mir? A guy who's been around the block so long and has achieved this elder statesman status that it's sort of like, okay, Frank Mir, I will nod slightly in approval at your two-fight win streak. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's different for him, right? Because he's been to the mountaintop. Like, he's been the UFC champion. Uh, he kind of tasted that glory, and it's just been a little while since he had it. And with Michael Bisping, it's different, uh, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about uh, in later rounds. But, you know, I guess it's one of those things where, I, on one hand, I like – one of the things I've always liked about MMA is that – it's not just like, hey, you're good until you're 30 and then you're totally washed up. We've seen a fair amount of guys who in their mid or late 30s even had some of the more successful times of their career just because experience counts for so much in this sport. And so to see a guy go for that, you know, go through those rough times, that four fight losing streak, uh, as you said, physically remake himself uh, at times questionably. 
and to now be that that elder statesman who's going to show up looking like somebody's dad, uh, just just looking like a man on the street, and still get it done. Yeah, it's hard not to kind of root for that guy. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we'll move on to round number two this week. Ben, a late-breaking Are You Fucking Kidding Me for me this week since just about an hour ago I was driving around in my car listening to sports talk radio like I do. Like you do, which I'm, still is just 30, baffling to me. 37-year-old father of two driving around listening to sports talk. You get a ride home from the gym with Chad Dennis, and you're going to have to listen to some annoying sports talk I radio. I almost never kick it over to Fox Sports Radio, but I had to this week because of ESPN's wall-to-wall coverage of the British Open, which is that even that is a bridge too far for me. I'm driving around listening to Fox Sports Radio today, and I hear an ad for UFC on Fox 16 this weekend. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I turn it up, and I hear radio announcer voice guy advertise a main event featuring DJ Dillashaw against Renan Barrio. I'm sorry, who? And which, at which point I said, are you fucking kidding me out (laughs) loud in my car when I was driving around by myself? Because I can abide by some guy on SportsCenter redoing the highlights not knowing how to read Henenborough's name off the teleprompter, right? But, like, this is your official broadcast partner in Fox Sports, and they don't know how to say Henenborough. They're going to go ahead and call him Renan Barrio. I'm looking forward to seeing Renan Barrio, see what he's got. Sounds like an exciting guy. Heck of a scrap. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, uh, it's happening again. The... The rumors, again, have started about the UFC doing a huge stadium show at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Nice. Happens, it seems, at least once a year. Yeah. Sometimes more often than that. Every time we're told that it's totally going to happen, we're just waiting for the huge fight that's going to make it feasible. Often we get that assurance when some dude from some Dallas area media outlet insists on showing up to every single press conference and asking at each one when the UFC is going to come do a huge show in Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Now we, we saw it revitalized last week. Kevin Eoli at Yahoo had a story, uh, and the story it seemed suggested that the UFC had wanted to do Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, uh, but then the date was not available because there was a concert at the MGM Grand. And so they said, oh, you know, instead of doing this like 18 to 20,000 or whatever seat, uh, stadium, it's not, it's not available. So we'll go ahead and do this 100,000 seat venue instead, just because the dates don't, don't work out. Now, I'm not saying that they won't go to Dallas Cowboys Stadium and that, or that it won't even happen with, uh, Josie Aldo and Conor McGregor. But are you fucking kidding me that we all are so easily uh, have our emotions toyed with by just the mere suggestion of this? Have we learned nothing? It's like this and the New York MMA legislation, Chad. Every time we hear it, we hear those words and we're just like a little puppy dog and you, you asked us if we wanted to go to the park and we got all excited and then we realized we're actually going to the vet. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I'll be surprised if that one doesn't wind up back in Vegas. Just saying. Uh, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, Michael Bisping did it again. This time he rolled up into Glasgow, Scotland, messed his toe all up. I don't know if you saw it. Shit was nasty. Yeah, there was a time on Twitter where I just couldn't log in without some other MMA media outlet showing me a huge close-up of Michael Bisping's shredded toe. Nasty. It was pretty gross. Pretty nasty. Yeah. But he won the split decision over Talos Leites, uh, then showed up to the post-fight press conference and was all Michael Bisping about it, uh, going ahead and calling for basically revenge matches against the former TRT users who had beaten him, Vitor Belfort uh, and Dan Henderson. Uh, more Vitor, it seemed, than, than just like the rest of the MMA world, holds way more vitriol toward uh, Vitor's TRT use than, than to Dan Henderson. Uh, that's just kind of how it seems MMA has decided to go. So there's that. Uh, also, though, he, you know he's still going to be talking about a title shot. Now, here's the thing. I think... We all kind of see, like, Michael Bisping is not going to become UFC middleweight champion with all the, the dudes who are hanging out at the top of the middleweight division. Yeah. Is he? I mean, just a lot be, of young, young beasts. I know, around. I know anything could happen. Yeah. And he's a good fighter. I think he's better than people give him credit for just because they don't like his personality. But you look at all the guys in the top of the middleweight division right now, and I think they all, you know, the, the top three, four, five guys, I think they all beat Michael Bisping. Right. But now, there would be no harm in it. Right. That's kind of how I feel, honestly. Like, what if we, what, what if Michael Bisping transgressed through his entire UFC career and never fought for the UFC middleweight title? Wouldn't you kind of, at the end of it, be like, oh man, Johnny Hendricks style? Uh, I got no problem if, if Michael Bisping were to go out, win one more fight against a, a reasonable contender, if you wanted to put him in there with Chris Weidman or Luke Rockle. I okay. don't think he's going to win that fight, but like also, like I said in the last round, man, I've earned a begrudging respect and maybe even a little soft spot in my heart for Michael the Count Bisping over the years and, uh, Hashtag would accept. <laughs> okay. I see what you're saying and I agree with you. My only problem with it is that there are just so many real legit contenders who seem like they could win the UFC middleweight title. And it, I mean, if we didn't have anything better to do, if we were in one of those situations where the champ had beaten the top three guys already and it was either get a new guy in there who's farther down the ranks or start doing reruns, then yeah, I'd say by all means throw Bisping in there. The thing that gives me pause there is that you would have to, you know, what do you, who do you tell to, to sit and wait for a minute? Cause Bisping is not super young. You know, he, he doesn't have a whole lot of time to work with necessarily. And you got Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, Anuel Romero all kind of sitting right there. Which of those three guys do you tell, you know what, you have to wait your turn because Bisping has been really nice and patient? Well, we're already going to do Weidman versus Rockhold, we think, for the title. So let's say we do that. Uh, I feel like that Belfort fight for Bisping makes a lot of sense. In, in, for, for reasons of, of revenge and reasons of middleweight division title picture. You know, he'll sell the shit out of it too. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're not going to lose any money on that. Uh, I, I see no reason why we don't just go ahead with Jacare Souza against Yoel Romero, which we've been talking about doing since we were all kids running around at, at, uh, boarding school. Um, and then I, you know, if, if depending on how all that stuff turned out, as, as you know, it's impossible to look ahead in this sport. But if, if Bisping went and got a victory over Vitor Belfort, then I think you, you'd have a toss up between Bisping and the winner of the Romero, uh, Souza fight to see who gets the next title fight. And you know, I love both those guys. Romero and Jacare Souza are, are both longstanding members of Team Dundas. But 
if if the UFC decided it was going to go ahead with Michael Bisping and then we would do the Romero Souza winner after that, I would see no problem with that and I wouldn't feel like anybody had suffered a great injustice. As long as, you know, that earthquake that's going to separate the west coast of the United States didn't happen in the interim and then we never got to it. <laughs> well, okay, I guess the thing is too, it always feels like we keep talking about a Michael Bisping title shot. Like nobody seems to be thinking like that he will win the UFC middleweight title and hold the UFC middleweight title and like go on some great reign. It's just kind of we want to see him have his night, right? We want to see him get to go out there and, and show us what he can do uh, in the one big fight that has eluded him. And that seems weird to me. Like I, I get where we're coming from on that. And again, like it's not unthinkable. Michael Bisping go out there, fight, win a close decision, something like that. And hey, he's the middleweight champion. But then it seems like we would just assume he would cough it up almost immediately to one of those, those killers at the top of the division. So I don't know. I mean, it seems almost like we'd be doing it because we feel bad for the guy. Well, it's not as though we are existing in the fight promotion where title shots are are earned and not given. Like we, you know, it's already been established that that promotion does not exist. Right. Like we just put Conor McGregor in a title fight, and now he's the interim featherweight champion. Uh, we put Mark Hunt in a goddamn interim heavyweight title fight last year. It's not as though we're dealing with a strict merit system here, judging, deciding who gets UFC title shots. Uh, and I understand that it is a weird and and may well rub some people the wrong way to assert that Michael Bisping should get a title shot, but I wouldn't have a problem with it. That's all I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Bisping is another one of those guys where you look at him now at 36, and the guy can still fight. You know, he's been, I think, financially, like one of the more successful fighters in the UFC to have never become a champion or, or even gotten into a title fight. Uh, it seems like he's he's had a lot of things go his way uh, while he's been in the UFC. And yet he's one of those guys, too, where I think that maybe when people look back on his career once it's over and they don't have the actual physical Michael Bisping around saying stuff that makes them mad, uh, they might be more willing to accept what he could do skill-wise. Because he is one of those dudes who, you know, you don't want to call him a gatekeeper but like a gatekeeper to the very top of the division maybe would be a better way to put it. Like if there's a better connotation, like another term you could use, like uh, gatekeeper platinum, uh, something like that, uh, elite gatekeeper. Like if you can beat Michael Bisping, then you you probably are one of the guys that is right there thinking about a title shot. Uh, and if you can't, then you're not. Uh, yeah, you know, Bisping – fulfilled a really unique role in the UFC for a long time. Uh, you know, he, he, and, and in some ways, this main event slot in Scotland against Talis Latis was kind of a throwback situation for him. Because when he first came into the UFC, uh, you know, from the Ultimate Fighter back in, the, in 2006, 2005, somewhere around there, uh, for a long time, it seemed like he was the guy that the UFC had selected to be... Uh, it's calling card in, in Europe. Like it figured out that it had this guy who was, you know, the kind of guy that you either loved or you hated and it could have him main event cards across the pond whenever it wanted to. He fought, you know, he fought in Manchester. He fought in London. He fought in Montreal. Uh, he fought in London. He fought in Birmingham. He fought in Manchester. He fought in Sydney. He fought in London. He fought in Sydney. Like those are fun Macau. Those are the Michael Bisping road trips of like 2006 <laughs> to 2010. And so, 
he was, you know, he was an important guy for them, I think. Like, he was a guy who in many ways spearheaded, like, the international expansion that we saw then just blow up in the last couple of years. Uh, and was a guy who, like, as you said, is a skilled guy and maybe took a long time for people to kind of give him the credit that he deserved as a fighter, but at the same time had the misfortune to spend most of his career fighting in a middleweight division that was lorded over by Anderson Silva. And we all looked at that matchup and thought that it would result in instant death for Michael Bisping. <laughs> and he never got that fight. And I don't know if he never got that fight because he lost a bunch of title eliminators uh, and, and or if he lost that fight because the UFC realized that he was a, a, a good drawing card for them and they didn't want to put him in a situation where he might just get destroyed. So at this point, late 30s, uh, guy is still out there proving that he can do it. I think you got to kind of take your hat off to Michael Bisping at this point. You do. You do. And he's a guy who can sell a fight against anyone. Anyone. And absolutely he, anybody. You know, it's not as though he invented that in the in fight sports, but like was one of the first guys to come along in the UFC, at least the modern era of the UFC, and kind of be that guy who would just, you know, have a feud with whoever. Yeah. And the thing I like about him doing that is that it seems like a thing that he has to do for himself. Uh, I mean, obviously it works well in the, just the business of fight promoting, but it also seems like something he needs in order to get up for a fight the way he wants to be. Because uh, you could do like a supercut of Michael Bisping weigh-ins, then they're all gonna look more or less the same. Of him getting in somebody's face, just jawing at them relentlessly, you know, maybe poking his finger in their face and, uh, saying a bunch of stuff that they may or may not totally understand, but the gist of which is, I'm gonna beat you up tomorrow night. Like that's and it just seems super heated. That's all of them. That's every single way in that the guy has ever been involved. I, I mean, that too. I think it, the the mix of the fact that we know he'll go out there and just pump it up and make anything feel like a grudge match, plus the fact that it doesn't seem to be totally fake just for the purposes of selling a fight. I mean, that works. That works for me. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with him now. We'll see we'll see how far this Michael Bisping bird can fly. Oh, that's sweet. That's a sweet image. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number three. Ben, since T.J. Dillashaw shocked the world in May of last year at UFC 173 and beat Hennon Barrow for the Bantamweight Championship, we've been doing our damnedest to put these two guys back in the cage together. Uh, it was supposed to happen at UFC 177, but that was the one where Hennon Barrow uh, had to go to the hospital because he wasn't going to make weight. And so we put Joe Soto in uh, pretty much same day, day before. And uh, Dillashaw went out and beat him. And then we were going to try to do it at UFC 186. And right before that event, Dillashaw had to drop out because he broke a rib in training. And now we think... I heard that was an old injury. Just a bruised rib. Yeah. You could tell by looking at the MRI, I heard. Uh, now, unless some kind of late-breaking news happens on Tuesday, far be it from that to ever be the case, it seems like we're going to get Hannon Barrow against TJ Dillashaw on Saturday night, as they say, during UFC broadcasts live and free on Fox. Uh, 
it seems like we kind of forgot about this fear, yeah. right? And and uh, it, it bears every possibility that it's just going to be another awesome fight here, and we're going to get it for free on Fox, which I think is uh, pretty awesome. It is, and you're, it's just flown so totally under the radar just because of the sheer number of events recently and the fact that a lot of times the UFC is put in these positions where it kind of has to choose where to spend its promotional energy. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in most cases, it chooses the pay-per-view, uh, the one where people are actually going to pay it a bunch of money directly to the UFC in order to watch the shit. Uh, let let the free TV cards kind of sort themselves out. And, you know, we've seen a little bit of, of promotion on this, and I'm sure they'll ramp it up this week. But it is, like, this is kind of a, a big deal to get to see this on Fox. And it's also one of those where you feel like a lot of people aren't going to recognize uh, what a good chance this is to see what's likely to be a good fight for free on TV. And it's also one of those fights, not only is it likely to be an entertaining fight just based on what we saw the first time, it's also going to answer some questions for us, which always makes for an interesting fight because, hey, did TJ Dillashaw just go out there, surprise Henenbrow with a new look, clock him hard once in the first round, and then take advantage of Henenbrow being out of it the entire time? Did he basically get lucky, if you know by lucky you mean aided by his own skill? Uh, or is he just really the best bantamweight in the world and maybe Hen and Brow is not quite the monster that we were at once, at one point led to believe he is? Yeah, well, a lot like we forgot about this feud or about this, this tandem, I guess you could say. It feels like we kind of have forgotten about Hen and Brow also. You know, prior to that loss to, to TJ Dillashaw last year at UFC 173. There's an awful lot of green on the man's Wikipedia page. You could you can scroll down for a while and not run into a loss for Hen and Barrow. So um, I feel like in this case, kind of the expected thing is for TJ Dillashaw to go out and re, uh, retain his title because that's what we saw the first time that they met. But I mean, this is also a situation where I don't think that we should be surprised if we get to see the over-sexualized slinky dance at the end of this thing, if the, the Henan Barrow who dominated the bantamweight division, you know, for a couple of years there after, after uh, beating Uriah Faber for the interim title way back in 2012, like that dude's still very capable of being the best 135 pounder on the planet, maybe in the absence of Dominic Cruz. And, uh, you know, so the, the outcome of this is not, predetermined or not a given as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, but then either way, I think like, you know, if TJ Dillashaw goes out there and beats him again, then we move on, right? Then we, we've pretty much decided what to make of that. Uh, if Henan Burrell wins, are we, are we in a, a do it again, brother situation? Are we in that same thing that we saw at lightweight at times where it was like, man, we need to get some new people fighting for this title. We can't just go back and forth every single time. And also, I, it makes me wonder, will how the UFC feels about Hen and Burrell after that, you know, weight cut, uh, disaster, are they still mad about him over that? Would that affect, uh, what they do with him there? Yeah, it kind of probably depends on, on how things go and what kind of victory you get. I see Hen and Burrell is going off, uh, almost a two to one underdog, uh, in this fight. Looks like plus 180 is about where you're going to get him. Uh, I mean, I think he would have to do a third fight, right? If if, if Barrow wins this uh, over Dillashaw, I'm not sure that there are a, a ton of other bantamweight contenders trying to storm the castle right now. You know, Rafael Asuncao is still out there. I guess we're we're kind of waiting to find out, the as we perennially are, I guess, waiting to find out the status of Dominic Cruz. Do we have any idea what's going on with him? I assume he's hurt. 
in some fashion, <laughs> after some fashion. Yeah, a broken heart, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> after you just um, talked about him like that. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a, a matchup at 135 pounds that, that would steal these guys' thunder if they had to do it a third time. Uh, is this the right spot for the bantamweight title? We've talked about this a little bit as it pertains to flyweight, but... Um, it doesn't seem like the 135 pound title, the 125 pound title are going to move a lot of pay-per-view units. Are you okay with the notion of these lighter weights as kind of the champions that you get to see fight for free? I mean, I'm okay with it because I like the opportunity to, to watch them fight for free. And I think it's especially a fight like this that can really deliver some exciting action. I think that does give you a little bit more of a chance to draw in some people who are just watching it on TV at a sports bar or something on Saturday night. Maybe the, the same can't really be said about flyweight right now. Uh, so I like that. I would just wonder how you feel about it if you're a champion uh, and you're not fighting on pay-per-view. It probably depends on your contract. A lot of those guys, the thing that they're working toward is let me become a champion so I can get a piece of the pay-per-view and if, if that's something that uh, is in your hopes there and then they tell you you're fighting on Fox instead, that would seem like a significant financial blow. But at the same time, I mean, hey, if you can go out there and, and beat somebody up uh, for a shiny gold belt on network TV, that seems like it could do good things for you. This is kind of a weird Fox card, don't you think? You've got TJ Dillashaw and Henan Barrow, Bandamweight title in the main event. Misha Tate and Jessica I is the co-main uh, and then you got Edson Barboza against Paul Felder at lightweight. And then to kick off the card, Joe Lauzen against Takanori Gomi, I guess, because uh, Joe J. Lau just fights on Fox, right? He's contractually obligated to to fight on Fox. Well, you know what that, that fight is doing there. That's the fight of like, hey, we're starting the show. Here's two guys who are just going to go fucking nuts right. and that's beat the, the shit out of each that's other. That's the fight that's designed to make you text your buddies. Yes. To say that you got to turn on Fox. And honestly, not a, a bad fight f- to serve that purpose. No, it's probably going to serve exactly that purpose. But like, look if you look at this fight card, is this one to you that seems to be a little bit down in terms of star power and, and like matchups that, that would pique people's interest? Man, you got the bantamweight championship going up for grabs. You got Misha Tate, who is still popular as all hell. Uh, you got Jolo's on and, and Gomi gonna come out there and, and throw them things. Um, and then maybe Edson Barboza do a crazy triple spinning Lux kick, a side check kick upside Paul Felder's head and knock him out. I mean, I think that that's a pretty good four fight lineup for a, a network TV card not seeing anything there that really gets my motor running but that i mean besides from the the bantamweight title fight which i think is awesome but maybe we should check that motor <laughs> maybe there's something wrong with the motor yeah i'm not the one limping around here stretching and groaning between every segment that's true um all right well let's do ben uh just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week uh what is your just saying stuff this week well chad i'm not sure you saw it on the prelim card uh they're from glasgow in on Saturday morning and whatnot, but the bricklayer Alir Latifi came out there and laid some goddamn bricks. Chad, nice. Went all upside Hans Stringer's head, just a uh, series of powerful blows that left Stringer uh, absolutely a puddle on the octagon floor. Chad, I'm just saying, is the bricklayer Alir Latifi somebody that I need to get excited about? At light heavyweight, because I can do that. I can do that really easily. Wow, okay. I'm just saying. Strong in favor of the bricklayer. I mean, he has everything we want there 
like a nickname that we came up with that he will almost assuredly never embrace. Uh, and now he can go out there, throw some hammers on people, uh, and maybe do an awkward failed backflip afterwards. Yeah. Hashtag would watch, Chad. Are you saying that we need to get a Lear Latifi, a team folks fight kit printed up? Cause we could do that. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we've had some problems on the back end, uh, with some of those fight kits, but we're, we're working on it. It's, in, in the meantime, the bricklayer.net, uh, is gonna be up and running here shortly. Is he close to obtaining big homie status, or has he already the big homie, Alir Latifi? You know what? I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and christen Alir Latifi the Breaking big homie. news here at the end of the co-main event podcast. Alir Latifi, the big homie. The big homie, the bricklayer. Well, Ben, Last week when we had our discussion about the new IV ban that's coming in October and we raised the question of exactly how that would be policed uh, short of having Jeff Nowitzki hide behind the curtains in somebody's room, it's possible that featherweight champion Jose Aldo was also listening to that. I don't know if you saw his uh, 16-minute long press conference video that showed up on MMA Fighting this week from Brazil where he basically looked and acted like a street-level crime boss who thought that any and all challenges to his his superiority were just kind of hilarious. He would chuckle to himself. <laughs> As part of that interview, Aldo said that he's just going to keep on doing IVs to rehydrate himself and pretty much dared Nowitzki and USADA to catch him doing it. And if they do catch him, he straight up double dog dared them to do anything about it. Here's what? his quote. I will continue to do IV. I don't care, Aldo said. I'll tell them I'm, go I'm going to go eat and I'll do it instead. I won't take... They won't take me out of the fucking fight, so I don't care. They can say whatever they want, but it's scientifically proved that the be it's the best way to rehydrate. Only if they put security guard with me 24 hours a day. I don't care. I will do it anyway, or someone else will do it for me. I will go to a friend's house, to a different hotel room. I don't fucking care about them. They won't take me out of the fight anyway. It's not doping. They will say they say they will text me, or they say they will test me. How are you going to get IV rehydration from my urine, brother? Only if they got new techniques. Are they ninjas? They're fucking stupid. Wow. Uh, I guess I'm just saying, I guess we can go gaga about Conor McGregor being the best talker in the featherweight division, but I don't know if anybody has noticed, but for the last few months, the actual featherweight champion has been spitting fire. You know, I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up, but according to, to several people I've talked to about it since then, they can detect that. If they do a blood test, they can uh, find the, the traces of the plastic uh, that the IV comes in, and they can actually catch you doing that. Somebody Maybe might not from your urine. want to get with Jose Aldo and let him know that, uh, or else this could be a convenient excuse to make him go away for a while, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the awesome stuff that happens at UFC on Fox uh, 16. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, the thing I like about all those stance there is it's pretty much the same as my stance about uh, drinking during work hours. How are you going to catch me? Are you fucking ninjas? I will do it. I will go to a friend's house and I will do it, Chad.